Welcome to Invested in Wellness. I'm Jesse Serafian. Today, we're going to be chatting about all things social media, the good, the bad, and everything in between. While social media is great for connections and collaboration, there's also a dark side to this world that can lead to anxiety, addiction, depression, harassment, and more. So to help fuel the discussion, we are joined today by Bailey Parnell. She is the founder and researcher at Safe Social. She's a TED Talk speaker and was also named Canada's top 100 most powerful women. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. By performing any of the exercises provided, you are doing so at your own risk. Fidelity will not be responsible or liable for any injury or harm you sustain as a result of the use of any information or content in this podcast. The views of the guests expressed in this broadcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of, nor are endorsed by, Fidelity. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into your research and start Safe Social. Yeah, for sure. So I own a nonprofit, soon to be charity, called Safe Social, as Jesse was saying. And I actually got into this research probably around 2014 and 2015 when I was working at Ryerson University before, before my business is now. And at Ryerson, I worked in student affairs, which is kind of everything outside the classroom that supports student success. And I actually wrote the job description, so it didn't exist at other universities. And half the role was marketing, storytelling, and really just making sure that students and people knew about these services like career centers and health and wellness and, and housing and all that jazz. And then the other half of my role was working with these departments to kind of update and innovate and co-create their programming. So I went on this trip, which is at the beginning of the TED Talk, and I it was a, it was a no-work vacation. It was the first no-work vacation I had taken in four years at that point, and so I was going dark on this trip, and I was turning on airplane mode and turning uh, off social media and whatnot, and I started to realize that I had phantom vibration syndrome, where you check your phone and you think it went off and didn't. And I was checking incessantly and I started to just realize the mindless habits that were there that only became noticeable, mindful, once the, once the social media was gone. And so I started thinking to myself, you know, I'm the person who I study this academically, I work in it professionally, and I use it personally. If I don't know what's going on here, nobody's going to know. And if I'm also going to be the person asking young people to come be on social media with me, then I think I also have a responsibility to make sure that they can do it safely. And that's really what sparked the research in this area, first at Ryerson and then in uh, more academic, my own master's research studies side of things, and then continue to today through the nonprofit. That's fantastic. And I think your message and the research that you've done with Safe Social is such an important one. You know, whether you're a parent, an educator, a student, a business owner, a friend, really anyone can benefit from it. So social media is such a powerful tool. Why do you think people are so consumed by it? I mean, social media is explicitly with some of the greatest minds of the world designed to make you addicted to it. It's designed to be engaging. But I think if you go back even further than social media, social media plays on a natural human instinct, which is to connect with other people. We are naturally social animals. And even yes, even yes, my introverts listening, you two are naturally social animals. You might just get your oxytocin from a smaller group of people. And so social media is just kind of like, it's, it's allowed us to do that very natural human thing in such a large 
scale and also personally tied to you with very directed interest, all the things you really want to know about. And then these companies, well, they will even maybe know what you really want to know about before you even know what you really want to know about because they've been tracking your data. They've been seeing what you spend just a couple seconds longer on. And so they can probably feed more of that to you than maybe you could even consciously know. So why we're consumed by it when you first get on, it could just be because we're doing that thing that humans do, which is have social relationships, kind of want to be interested in what other people are up to, kind of want to have some sense. Um, again, happened long before social media, even if you look back at like magazines and for me, it was MSN. And then you stay consumed because it's perfectly, it's just perfectly architected to your subconscious interests. And also just sharing with my experience. I know when I started with social media, having those like sleepless nights, like, oh, my friend count's not going up or I'm not getting enough likes or not enough comments. And I know I have lots of friends that have thousands and thousands of followers and they too get that anxiety, that feeling, that sleepless night where, okay, how come I'm not getting the engagement that I'm supposed to have? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a uh... That's pretty normal. And when we start talking about social media as a risky behavior, I think this will make sense even more. And hopefully we'll, I want to give people the lens to look at this in a more productive way. Because if I was talking about another risky behavior like alcohol or even driving, and I said, you know, I think about it at night. I think about it when I'm not doing it. When I'm not drinking, I think about what I'm going to do when I am drinking. I mean, we'll go through the risks, but uh, we would have a very different reaction. It's just because social media is fairly ubiquitous that I don't think we'd call it what it should be, which is a risky behavior. Right. And continuing with that. So what are the risks of using social media? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I, I think that social media is a risky behavior like sex or drugs or alcohol or even driving. And in psychology, we define a risky behavior fairly simply as something where when you participate, you expose yourself to potential harm. And we know for sure now that you expose yourself to potential harm when using social media. And the, these risks or this potential harm would be, I mean, you just named it. I might have frustration. I might, um, I might have stress. I might have anxiety. I might have PTSD because I don't really know what's going to come up in my feed and it could trigger something that's happened to me. And then even, you know, we get to even more serious risks like online harassment and cyber stalking and revenge porn and the list literally goes on and on so we get to anxiety and depression and uh you know some of the worst things that um that you can imagine with mental health so if we know that this is a possibility that you can feel this way as a result of using then we know that it is a risky behavior and in my opinion we should be calling it and treating it and parenting it and governing it closer to how we govern other risky behaviors like alcohol um, than say just leaving it in the conversation of like TV and radio or something like that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And speaking of those triggers, what are some of those signs that affect how we think and feel? Well, okay, so there's a ton of them. We, we could go on forever. Uh, if I gave probably the most important piece of information, it would be that you have to figure out what it is for you. But first we have the things contributing to the ecosystem, which these risks can happen. So for one, we deal a lot with highlight reels in the social media space. And just like in sports, a highlight reel is a collection of these sort of best and brightest moments. Except what happens is that we engage in social comparison, which is again, a very, very normal human experience 
outside of social media long before it existed. Um, social comparison happens and starts to boost up around puberty. So around 11, you start to go outside the home to start comparing yourself to peers as a means of constructing your identity. That can be very serious or it can just be simply, I know that I'm a tall person because I look around and most people are shorter than me. Therefore, through that comparison, I know that I'm a, I, I have an identity as a tall person. And so then you add on social media, we're seeing the best of everyone's life. And it's almost sometimes you can't help but compare your behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. But if I told you, you know, everyone listening and watching, if I said, oh, I Bailey, yes, I compare myself to everyone's best moment. And I expect myself to have all of the strengths, all of the looks, all of the experiences of everyone's best moment. You would say, Bailey, that's unreasonable. Why would you expect that of yourself? You have your own strengths. Other people have different ones. You have your own best moments. Other people have different ones. So it would be unreasonable comparison. And then sometimes it's literally an unreal comparison. And I mean unreal because you're, compares, you're comparing yourself to quite literally digitally altered photos or filters or all these sorts of things. And, and that well, you actually cannot ever be that because it's digitally altered. And so it's an unreal or unreasonable comparison very often. And so we have that going on. We have social currency, which is these likes, comments, shares, um, private share to a DM, 0.5 seconds longer you spend on an ad. How you spend your attention becomes all of these recorded transactions attributing value to something. And, you know, whether you're spending that attention consciously or not, the networks are absolutely quantifying and making money off of how you spend that attention. So these things will affect how you think or feel. Um, how, oh, and then, let me just get me going, Jesse. The most important thing that will affect how you think or feel, and this came out top, top, most important thing out of my research was how you feel about yourself offline at time of use. Mm. So what are some of the signs that will affect how you think or feel? Well, from one of my participants, not from the majority of my participants, it almost sounded exactly like this. You know, if I went to the gym that day and I feel good about myself, then I go on Instagram and I see fitness models and I think hashtag goals. But if I didn't and I feel dusty or nasty, then I go on Instagram and I think I hate my life. And this is really, really important because, of course, we know that two different people are going to react to a piece of content differently. But what this is suggesting is that the same person can react differently to the same piece of content in two different hours based on how they're feeling about themselves at time of use. So kind of actually makes the solutions a little bit different too. It seems counterintuitive at first, but perhaps looking offline would be the best first course of action. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that point that you that you mentioned about how you feel offline is huge. And I think for myself, I've unfollowed people that have or didn't that I felt like wouldn't put me down or, you know, I felt a certain yeah. way or would keep me up at night. I, I would see something right before bed and that would keep me up at night or just mm -hmm. unfollow people that just didn't provide value for me. So do you suggest going through our That's followers really and just unfollowing people that, you know, bring us down? I would definitely suggest that. And it sounds like what you were engaging in was an, what would be called an upward social comparison. Hmm. So upward comparison, like if you almost literally imagine like me looking up at someone, I've, I've judged and deemed them better than me in some way. 
Now, what was interesting in, in social comparison theory in general, and particularly on social media, upward comparisons can have two different, totally different impacts on your mental health. So for one, um, for what was happening for you before bed, and it, it could very well be different now, um, and for what would happen for, say, my husband a few years ago was he would make an upward comparison and it would make him feel bad about himself. So he, like you, he decided his safe social strategy was going to be to unfollow all celebrities and influencers and people who had more or that were making him feel like less than. Now, I too had made upward social comparisons um, at the same time my husband did, but they actually had a, the exact opposite impact on me. So I would follow the same influencer who was maybe like a travel blogger or style influencer. And for me, it was actually motivating because I, or inspiring, because, you know, I don't think I'm naturally stylish. So they would show me like interesting combinations or they would show me somewhere I didn't know I wanted to travel in the world and it would go on the uh, vision board. And this was also true for 20% of my participants where they would make a, an upward social comparison Still saying like, oh yeah, like I want to travel there, therefore presupposes I think where you are is better than where I am right now. Um, but it had a positive impact on their mental health, which again came back to how they felt about themselves. They were more likely to, even if they were going to make an upward social comparison, if they had done things to advance their own goals or their own dreams or had been, you know, had seen their friends or like that quote I, I gave, if they went to the gym, they saw the same fitness model and thought, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm getting for. It was motivating. Yeah. So really, again, like you suggested, if you want to unfollow people and um, make it so that your social media landscape actually serves you, you need to do that. And just know that that might change in a couple of years. You might mm -hmm. actually be ready offline to invite those people back into your feed. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And speaking about the effects of social media, who do you think is the at most risk group that can be affected by this and why? Oh, well, it's a great, it's a great question, Jesse. It's um, definitely preteens and, and teenagers particularly. And I imagine people are listening or saying, yeah, like that makes a lot of sense, but I'll tell you why. Um, preteens particularly and teenagers, I'd say, especially when puberty begins, usually around 11, as I mentioned earlier already, actually, that that's the stage of life where you start going outside the home and comparing yourself to peers. Now, this has existed long, long before social media. Okay. Like I said that for me, it was MSN and we would have entire MSN nights. I mean, like we would go to friend's house and the only thing on the agenda was talk on MSN to our yeah. other friends and like pull some crap, like go <laughs> offline and online and make sure that our crush knows we're online. Like it's really, the, really the same stuff, except the difference now is it is directly tied to you. It is, um, it doesn't turn off at the end of the day. It doesn't turn off ever. And, and um, that social currency is really, I think making people falsely believe that these are objective comparisons that, oh, well, they got 100 likes and I got 50, therefore theirs is better. But this is anything, anything but objective, especially on the algorithm side of things. And so um, they're at risk because they're already engaging in this normal part of life. They're secondly at risk because their brains, if you're under 25, are quite literally not done growing. So they're, so they're still a developed, developing brain. And just like any risky behavior, developing brains are more at risk. Um, for conditioning, for anything. 
And then, you know, another thing I think about often is that we are in this really weird time of history right now where we don't have 50 year olds that went through puberty with social media. They just don't exist yet. And so let's say you are a young person or a preteen or teenager who's going and entering this risky space. Um, The risks are more and more. You've not really had any education on it, probably not as much parenting on it. And maybe you do encounter one of these risks, you know, maybe you can't figure out why you're feeling bad about yourself or, you know, even worse, like you're getting unwanted messages in your DMs and the people you might typically go to for support, parents, educators, coaches, guidance counselors, right now, largely did not grow up with social media themselves. And so sometimes they want to say things like, why do you care if this person didn't like your photo, but, but they care. And this is really largely unhelpful to the outcome of, of what they're feeling in, the, in that moment. And so, you, I mean, in the worst case scenario, you could be young right now. Someone's, you know, harassing you in your DMs. You go to that guidance counselor and you're saying, you know, I'm being harassed in my DMs. And they say, what's a DM? And so there's like this disconnect right now. Um, and there's a lack of this requisite, I think, education for young people to engage in this risky behavior safely. There's no rules around it. Governments have largely kind of like not done anything yet. Um, the companies are making a ton of money off of getting young people addicted. I mean, there's literally a messenger for kids now. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that regulation. We don't have that education in schools. And then we don't have, um, you know, like a, a generally understood sort of method for how we should parent around this. And so it's almost like we said, you know, here's the alcohol cabinet, drink up, have fun. We'll see on the other side if it, you know, if it works out well. That's how, that's how I feel right now. Yeah. Well, speaking about that, as a parent myself, I have a young son. He's only three years old. But, you know, as it becomes more accessible and normalized for young kids, do you think safe social should be taught in schools? I think safe social should be taught in schools five years before safe sex conversations, because that's when they're getting online. Mm. And even if your kid at eight, nine years old, even if you're saying here, I would, my kid's not online, I don't have to worry. The reality is that their friends are. And I talked to so many parents where they're like, yeah, I've tried to shield my kid from it, but it doesn't matter because they go to their friend's house and their friends taking videos for their Instagram. And now they're tagged all over the internet and they don't have any accounts Mm. that, or my kids straight up got a Finsta fake Instagram account and they just go on their friend's phone when they're at school. And so again, if you think about it, like, I don't know, like alcohol or cannabis or, you know, these other risky behaviors, at least the way I was raised in my house was, um, there was no secrets about it. Like there was no, I knew exactly what alcohol was. I knew exactly what it could do to you. I knew how to do it safely, even though, you know, I wasn't 19 and my parents were not giving it to me. But then when I did go to school or when I was around, I still felt like I confidently could navigate these spaces. And so, yeah, maybe there's three, you know, a three-year-old are pretty smart though. So at three, you're not having this level of dialogue, but a three-year-old is still observing your learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Sorry. They're still observing your behavior, which becomes learned behavior. And so, you know, let's say you're doing this all the time and they're trying to get your attention and they're like, hello, like mom. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You may not think about it in the moment because it's just one time, but then this, this, does become a learned behavior for an appropriate way to to socially communicate with people. And so that's more what you'd probably have to worry about at at three years old. Although, you know, even my three-year-old's nieces and nephews know how to like take a photo and recognize themselves and stuff. 
So you have to think about that too. And then maybe when they're nine and their friends are getting on, the conversation changes a little too. Some people are going to be online and this is kind of some of the stuff that might happen. So if this happens to any of your friends, if you come talk to me and we'll figure it out. And when you do get accounts at, I don't know, I don't know when you're going to let your kids have accounts, let's say 14. And then maybe the conversation is, okay, well, let's set privacy settings together and I have to follow you. And, um, and you know, any sort of, any sort of list of rules that you might have. Yeah, I like that. So switching perspectives here, how can we have a positive experience online? Yeah, I'm really glad that you've asked this too, actually, because um, because the funny thing is I just spent a lot of time talking about the risks of using safe social, but actually what safe social and what practicing safe social is, is actually completely with the understanding that asking you to get off social media completely is likely not going to work because there is a lot of good here too. And I experience all of that good. You know, I get, I get business from social media. I get connected to people around the world. I find people with the same interests. I get inspired, motivated. I learn. I'm pretty sure you found me through safe, through social media. So this is, um, you know, these are a lot of really good benefits here. And if I asked anyone listening, why are you still on? I'm sure they would have them. Mm-hmm. So my approach to most risky behaviors, similar to social media, is a harm reduction approach. If abstinence is not an option for you, if getting off the networks completely is not an option for you, then how do we practice safe social? So that we can get that good without that bad. And it's really doing all the things, at least starting with what we've talked about here, you know, making sure that you know the risks, that you've protected yourself against them, that um, that you've protected your kids against them. Because if you're a parent and you're letting your kid engage in this risky behavior, then it is also part of your responsibility to make sure that they can do it safely. Mm-hmm. It's similar to like if you were engaging in the risky behavior of drinking and your kids were around, you would employ different rules. You know, you're not going to leave it where, you know, a three-year-old can grab it. It's the kind of same thing with social media. Like, I don't want to leave it somewhere where you're going to end up going live. Like, you know, even, even famous people like Kim Kardashian's kids, you know, like there was that funny story about where her kid went on TikTok live and came into her bedroom posting her. And so it was like, yeah, like you have to think about that kind of stuff too. So, so the good here is that, um, you can have a positive experience. I believe if you practice safe social if you do the things that you need to do, if you do the self-awareness work, you know, how can you design a feed that doesn't stress you out if you've never really thought about the things that stress you out? How can you design a feed that motivates you if you've not thought about the things that motivate you? Or as you've said, if you're not using mindfully and you're not going through and thinking, you know, oh, let me actually look at this post. Let me actually read it and think about who posted it and do I ever like anything that they post and should I unfollow them? That's mindful social use. You know, just do that for like, start with three posts and you will slowly start to make your feed suit, you know, the kinds of things that serve you and give you sort of light and you know, mental nourishment than, than um, the ones that detract from your mental health. Yeah, 100%. So speaking about celebrities, in the UK in 2017, the Advertising Standards Authority enacted a regulation for UK celebrities or influencers to disclose whether a post is an advertisement and could face face fines if they don't disclose it. So do you think other countries should follow suit? Like Instagram, should they follow suit? Uh, Yeah, for sure. So I would say that we in, in 
Canada and the U.S. are actually really behind when it comes to digital regulation and regulating the internet period, if you ask me. Um, I think who's leading the charge is certainly the U.K., as you've said, and the advertising part of it is just it's just one part of it actually they also did a lot of work on privacy so they basically have said that we believe that individuals should be able to use their data and control who has your data for how long and all that jazz and that was through the gdpr and what they've said and what they've done with actually both these instances of regulation is they've said to the companies we don't really care where you're based you know, we don't care if you say you're in California, but you're actually in Ireland because of low corporate tax rates. Like, we don't care. If you want to service our people in this geolocation or in this country, then these are our rules and you figure it out because you're making money off of our people through this risky behavior. And it's our job as the government to make it safe for them. So um, guess what? They did that regulation and the companies did figure it out. <laughs> so, and now you have, um, sort of, uh, you, you may even know if you're on Instagram here that you can actually see paid, a yeah. paid note now that didn't come out of a Canadian born regulation. <laughs> let me tell you, it was came out of the UK and I'd say Australia is a like, close behind in New Zealand and, and those countries. So, um, we should, we should absolutely follow suit. I think in those respects, and I think we should go further. We should, we should at least be having the discussion, which we're not even there yet. Like we shouldn't even be having the discussion. You know, should there be a license to use this thing? Because we require licenses for driving because we know that there's risks. We know that you could potentially hurt others because this is a shared road. And um, we want to make sure that you have a written understanding of the risks here and the rules of the road. And then we want to make sure you have a practical understanding of the rules here and the, and the rules of the road or whatnot. And then we let you drive. And then if you break those rules, the privilege is revoked. So, you know, should there be some kind of license to use these where it's like at least some, you know, written understanding when you sign up that you know, it's not okay to harass people. Um, mm -hmm. I know that some people still break driving rules, but the point is like, hopefully we can add in little interventions all over the place so that we get a safe road. Not because one of them independently, like the seatbelt alone doesn't save every driver's life. Mm -hmm. It's the seatbelt in conjunction with how a car is designed, with how the roads are laid out, with us all agreeing to follow the same set of rules. And so I'm just hoping to even have the conversation. Yeah, should there be a license? Let's talk about it. Should should you have to have your identity uh, verified? You know, to even have a social media account, you have to prove that you're actually who you say that you are, similar to how you have to do on say Airbnb. Um, you know, you know, let's have some let's have some digital literacy training in school so that people even know like what the heck their data is. <laughs> and then let's just start there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that theme, like should celebrities or influencers disclose whether an image is photoshopped or edited? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think I haven't thought about this too deeply, but my gut reaction is saying I would love to see what would happen. <laughs> like, I would love that if you had to say that a photo was edited or if like Facebook just said, yeah, there's a filter on this. Oh um, but then I'm like, I don't I don't know how you would do that one because I think they would probably just Photoshop it offline, mm. like outside the apps and put it on. So yeah, I think it would be cool to have it. I don't know how you'd implement it yet. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. I know you have your five steps towards safe social. If you can explain those steps. 
Oh yeah, sure. You can go on the, on the website too. It's a non, it's free. It's safesocialmedia.co. The five steps are pretty similar actually to the treatment of that of other risky behaviors. So step one, build awareness and understanding. Are we even speaking the same language here? Do I even know what stresses me out? What are the risks here? Step two is then based on that awareness and understanding. Step two is moderating your consumption or doing the things you need to do to get those benefits of social for you and less of the risks for you because it's slightly different for everyone here. Mm -hmm. Step three is changing the ecosystem and, and building the offline soft skills. So that way, if you're building resilience offline, I promise you, it will translate online. If you're building self-awareness offline, it will translate online. Self-confidence, you name it. Just I promise you, trust me here because I don't have a lot of time to convince you. <laughs> and then step four is modeling good behavior and leading by example. So we are defining what these spaces look like in history right now. And you're not allowed to criticize teenagers if you yourself have been documenting their entire life on social media. It's possible that it's learned. You're not allowed to complain about toxicity of social media if you are also spreading hateful comments and controversial crap online. Then maybe you're contributing to the toxicity. So it's in what you post, but it's also in your, your relationship with your mobile behavior. And then finally, step five, which you talked a little bit about, is holding the responsible parties accountable. So like every risky behavior, if we want the good here, if we want digital well-being, then we're going to need a multi-pronged approach where all responsible parties work together. Governments, the companies, parents, educators, media, and of course ourselves. What is one key takeaway that you want them to get from our discussion today? Well, my key takeaway would be to practice safe social. When you're, when you're using today, you know, think, am I doing this because I actually want to or just because everyone else is here? Am I actually consuming something I find valuable and good or am I just drinking to drink? And so, so my one takeaway is practice safe social. Love that. I, for myself, I like to go on digital detoxes every now and then. I feel like that's good for the soul. Um, so good. I'll do like maybe an entire week where I don't look on Instagram or Facebook or, or LinkedIn. And I feel like that is so good for me. And there's like two quotes that come up. It's like less scrolling, more living, disconnect to connect. Those are, I think that's important too. Oh, so good. Because you know what? You take a detox, you only bring back the stuff you like and you leave the stuff you don't. Great. Well, thank you so much, Bailey, for the discussion and for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for practicing with us today. Be sure to subscribe to Fidelity's Invested in Wellness podcast on your podcast platform of choice. If you'd like to follow for more, tune in to the Invested in Wellness webcast on Mondays at 1230 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Register now on fidelity.ca.